I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. R.J. Julia was honored the other day to have hosted former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright at the Yale School of Management. We had a sold-out crowd of over 500 people, and it it was like Madeleine Albright was a rock star. And she opened with a very funny story about her not always being recognized. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Madeleine Albright uh, for her new book called Fascism, A Warning. Well, thank you. And there's nothing better than to be introduced by a good friend. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for telling everybody who I am, uh, because not everybody always knows. So what happened not long ago, I was on my way back from China, and Chicago was the first port of entry, and I put my stuff down on the conveyor belt, and the lady behind me said, so where'd you get all those screw-top bottles? My bottles all leak. And I said, well, I got them at the container store. And then I'm walking, and the TSA guard, through the magnetometer, he says, oh, my God, it's you. Uh, He said, I'm from Bosnia, and we all love you in Bosnia. And if it weren't for you, there wouldn't be a Bosnia. And you're always welcome in Bosnia. And can I have my picture taken with you? So we have our picture taken. It screws up the whole line. I, I then go back, and the lady of the screw top bottle says, so what exactly happened here? And I said, well, I used to be Secretary of State. And she said, of Bosnia? (laughs) So, Harold, thank you. (laughs) I love that story. Well, welcome to New Haven. I know you've been here any number of times, and you've done uh, other events for R.J. Julia. And I want to thank Yale School of Management. I want to thank Harold for that lovely um, introduction and taking the time uh, to do that. So I'm going to start with a really complicated question, given the name of your book. A lot of people use the term fascism. People throw it around. But how do you define it? Well, it's very hard to define, frankly, and people do use it all the time. If they disagree with somebody, they call that person a fascist or some teenage boy that isn't allowed to drive calls his father a fascist. You know, so it's just a term that gets thrown around a lot, as you point out. I think that the issue is it's not an ideology. It is a process, and it is a process of gaining power and keeping it. And it is based, I think, on the following points. One is that when a society is even vaguely divided over economic issue or a national issue, um, that that leader identifies himself with one group, kind of a nativist group, uh, at the expense of the other, so that there is uh, a division that's made even worse by that, and the other group uh, is a minority that is blamed for whatever the problems are. Then the other characteristics are somebody that has no respect for any institutions, um, that also thinks that the press is the enemy of the people, Um, and that, in fact, thinks that he's above the law, 
and I think it is this process of propagandizing and rallies and a variety of things that make a fascist. But the, one of the other parts is it uses violence um, to uh, make a point and to gain power. Always. Always. And it is really a bully with an army. And so... Um, but it is hard to define, and I think we have to be careful not to just throw the term around. I do. Um, I decided to do kind of a historical approach to it, uh, but I think we have to be very careful in uh, looking at it as a process and not an ideology. Mm. And and the quote that you have at the beginning of the book from Primo Levi is: "Every age has its own fascism." different ways in which fascism rears its head. And tell us why you picked that quote. Because I do think there's an attempt to have a very um, kind of rigid definition of it, which Mm. is why I make a point of saying it's a process rather than an ideology. It comes about as a result of conditions at a particular time, Um, but always based on the Uh, real problem that there are divisions and then that leader exacerbates that division. But it's always a little bit different. Now Mussolini was the first fascist Um, and it's very interesting. Um, I decided that I wanted to take a historical approach to this Um, and I think I found and I think it's probably true of other people that one actually knows less about Mussolini than uh, at least that I knew and kind of um, and what was interesting he came into power after World War I, when the Italians, who had fought on the side of the Allies, felt that they had not been respected properly and that they really um, had not gotten their due. And so there was a lot of anger uh, in Italy. They had a lot of different governments. There was dislocation. He was, Mussolini was a very smart person who initially had begun on the left and kind of moved over uh, to the right in terms of his beliefs. He was a very good speaker, um, and he uh, was, in, in fact, able to rally a lot of people and have them follow him. What I found interesting, and one of the hardest points that I make, is that basically um, Mussolini and Hitler got power constitutionally. Um, and what happened in the case of Italy, King Emmanuel uh, kind of felt that um, um, he needed a strong leader, and he called on Mussolini to become the leader, in Germany, the Germans were dissatisfied by the results of World War I and the Versailles Treaty and reparations and uh, financial problems in the Weimar Republic. And von Hindenburg, the leader, made uh, Hitler a vice chancellor and then moved him up. So that was constitutional. And I think that's a real lesson. Um, and by the way, one of the things that um, Mussolini wanted to do was to drain the swamp. Uh, and, he, and that was one of the terms. He, I have a great quote of his, um, which uh, I think uh, answers a lot. Mussolini said to a reporter, often I would like to be wrong, but so far it has never happened. Uh, uh, and then I do think the best quote in the book, and I think this is worth thinking about, that he said, or, or it's attributed to him, is if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, nobody notices. So there's a lot of feather plucking going on, uh, and you can't say those two words quickly together. <laughs> we could try to get to that. <laughs> you know, one of, one of the 
elements of uh, your book that I found particularly important is, you know, there's a quote from Daniel Borstein that if you try to plan for the future without studying history, it's like planting cut flowers. And the approach that you take, starting with Hitler and Mussolini, I think reminds us we think we know those stories and we think we know how it happens. And one of the things that I found shocking, and I've read probably more books about Hitler than I ought to admit to, but share with us how Hitler came to power and his shocking ability to pass a law called the Law for Removing Distress of the People and the Reich. Well, I think that part of it goes back again to the sense that he was speaking on behalf of those that had not been treated properly, and that it was really uh, those that had suffered as a result of the economic divisions, and that all of a sudden he became kind of the hero of the dispossessed. Uh, The problem, and this I think is part of the process, is it may all begin that way to identify with this group that feels out of it, and then the part that happens is it then turns against the others. And so there's always, um, you know, a scapegoat that is responsible for this. And there is, it's majority rule without any minority rights, but it begins out of a, a feeling that X group has not been respected, that you're speaking on their behalf, that you are their savior. Um, And then Hitler obviously identified it with the great German nation and uh, really plugged into some other part of things, which is not just uh, a patriotic aspect, but nationalism. And hyper-nationalism is very, very dangerous. And that's where I kind of look at some of the things that are going on now in, in Europe, for instance, of Orban or um, uh, the, 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 or Erdogan or uh, what has happened in Poland and what has uh, had been happening until earlier this week in Venezuela. So I think, the, or the Philippines, is this kind of sense that there has not been justice for your nationalist group and it's the fault of the neighbors or the migrants or the Jews. So, so what were, you know, because you, the, the way the book is organized, in case you didn't know this, is <laughs> is to cover Hitler and Mussolini and then cover in the present day people like Erdogan or Maduro or Orban. What were the conditions that fertilized the environment that these countries like Poland and Hungary that had been vibrantly democratic move to fascism. What what were the ingredients that allowed that to happen? Well, I do think that, first of all, uh, I think, and this is the the year we are about to celebrate the end of the Cold War, um, and there was a sense of euphoria about that and, and kind of a feeling if you provided the nuts and bolts of democracy and lifted the horror. By the way, I think communists are fascists, um, and uh, they had a revolution, uh, and it's these other countries that I talk about where the people actually were elected, and elected uh, because people were dissatisfied with what had actually taken place immediately after the Cold War, Mm -hmm. that it took a while. And I've been trying to figure out what went wrong, frankly. Um, 
Harold mentioned, I've been chairman of the board of the National Democratic Institute. We were really euphoric about what was going on, and all of a sudden these countries were given the opportunity to be free. Orban was one of our favorite dissidents. Um, he was somebody, um, by the way, he got his education got paid for by George Soros, who now is uh, blaming for everything. But the bottom line is there was... You think he'll pay him back the money? Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, So uh, I I think the issue was that I think we thought that democracy would be quick and easy. And I've been trying to analyze what the issue was, and I think a lot of it is economic, that people felt that they were not getting their due in something, that there was a, a class of oligarchs that were getting their money illegally, um, and all of a sudden, instead of admiring capitalism in the West, they all of a sudden found uh, a scapegoat, and that was uh, the the migrants that were coming in, and they were uh, and they couldn't figure out what their identity was, and so there were a lot of identity politics that were happening. But I, the truth is, it's very hard to figure out all the things that went wrong. Uh, and but the main thing, and I, I do think this is important to say, the social contract was broken. Uh, People gave up generally, not just immediately after uh, the Cold War, but generally long ago in the 19th century, people gave up some individual rights in order to be protected by a state, and both parts did not fulfill their contract. So people might be interested, um, as we get through this historical part, to understand what this might have to do with our current president. You might want to know that, I'm assuming. Um, So I'd like to read um, the shadow looming over these pages is, of course, that of Donald Trump. He is president because he convinced enough voters in the right states that he was a teller of blunt truths, a masterful negotiator, and an effective champion of American interests. That he is none of those things should put us on edge, but there is a larger cause for unease. He is the first anti-democratic president in modern U.S. history. On too many days, beginning in the early hours, he flaunts his disdain for democratic institutions, the ideals of equality, social justice, civil discourse, civic virtues, and America itself. So, Madam Secretary, is Donald Trump a fascist? I do not call him a fascist. I do think, however, that he is the least democratic president in modern American history, uh, which he seems to prove every day. And um, I am very troubled. And I wrote this book Deliberately, some people think it's alarmist. It's supposed to be alarmist. It is a warning. Its subtitle is a, a warning. warning. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I really do Even think I picked up you on picked that. that. <laughs> uh, but I, I think it's important for, you know, I'm often asked if I'm an optimist or a pessimist. I'm an optimist who worries a lot. Hmm. And so I decided that it was important. You took one of my good lines. Well, that, uh, <laughs> but I, I do think what is important is to, I deliberately did the historical things. Right. Um, I thought that was important and stated what I just said in terms of that Mussolini and Hitler came in constitutionally. All of the very, not every authoritarian is a fascist, but every fascist is authoritarian. But I do think that everybody I talk about was elected 
Orban was elected, Erdogan was elected, Duterte in the Philippines was elected, uh, Maduro, first Chavez and then Maduro were elected. And it isn't as if that is the protection of why that happens. Why are these people elected? And so I think that that's what we have to look at and try to figure out what can be done. So, you know, we all have this, uh, and we know the saying, see something, say something. I have added to that, do something. Um, and so that I have my to-do list. And, and my to-do list is to talk about it when the feathers are being plucked, uh, to really note the fact that there is incredible criticism of the media. One of the things, I was just uh, looking at the latest tweet of the president, uh, and that is there were real questions in the last 48 hours as to what he said or did vis-a-vis the, uh, this panel of his intelligence experts and disagreeing with them and then tweeting that they were all naive. In his latest tweet a little while ago, he said the media mischaracterized it. You know, I mean, we all watched it. We watched on television as these people were testifying in front of the um, Senate, um, and then uh, he puts out a tweet saying that um, the intelligence community is naive and doesn't know what it's doing. So to constantly kind of keep saying it's the media's fault. So I think what we have to do is make clear that a free press is the basis of a democracy. I think we also... um, have to understand what is, um, how important it is to respect the institutions. The kind of things that Trump has been saying about the judiciary, not the Supreme Court, but the others in terms of putting people down or saying that a Mexican-American can't be a judge or some horrible thing like that. Then also that part, uh, the institutions, also making very clear that he thinks he's above the law. So I think that there are things that we have to recognize that are going on. The other part, I think, that has to happen is I'm urging people to run for office and those who are not running to support those who are. And therefore, I'm very fascinated by what's just happened in the midterm elections, where as a result of people going out to vote, there is something happening in terms of our institutions and an understanding of the role of Congress in Article One. Then, I'm continuing on my to-do list, what is really hard is to, in fact, talk to people with whom you disagree. I don't like the word tolerance because that's tolerate, put up with. I think what we need to do is respect their views but have civilized discussions and try to figure out why they feel the way they do. And then I don't think there's ever been a book or a speech um, that's been given or written without quoting Robert Frost. So um, (laughs) one of the quotes I like is, um, the older I get, the younger are my teachers. And I feel very strongly about that, and I was really admiring of the Parkland kids that went out and marched and held a town hall meetings. I do teach. I think my students, and obviously the students at Yale, uh, are, this is a new generation that needs to absorb what has gone on and get out there. And, um, and I do think that that is something that we need to, to really luxuriate in the possibility of a new generation looking at various issues. I do think 
that people and institutions at age 70 need a little refurbishing. And so I think we need to think about what are the institutional structures that have to take place. And we can't just moan and groan. We have to do something. And I am willing to talk about the things that have to be done. And we appreciate that. So do you think that uh, Donald Trump is cosmetic or symptomatic? Uh, both, frankly. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I think I don't, I'm trying. I really, uh, trying to figure out, first of all, uh, how and why he got elected, and some of that we've talked about. And as I said, I would have written this book no matter who had gotten elected because there were some symptoms, in fact, of dissatisfaction and divisions and a lack of understanding of what technology had done to the American society and people losing jobs and all that. And, and kind of taking for granted things. Um, but I do think that there are elements of uh, a, a personality that thrives on adulation. And that, I can tell you, that the worst thing for any leader is to be surrounded by people who've drunk the Kool-Aid. Um, and, and that is part of the things as one looks at some of the cabinet meetings or various things that one hears. And the most important thing is to be able to, to take criticism and not disparage it. And that doesn't seem to be something. Yeah. That's yeah. not working out yeah. for him. Yeah. And, and do you think the media has done their job? I'm confused about the media, mm. I have to tell you, uh, because I think that in some ways, and it's very hard for me to say this, is that they helped Trump right. uh, by covering him all the time. Um, Letting him call into shows. All kinds and- of things and the things that happened and ratings and a variety of things. And therefore, what I think has to happen, um, and I think this is important to say at a university because people understand this, in order, when you're doing research, you have to look at a lot of different sources and do some comparison and try to figure out the circumstances under which something was written. And I do think the same thing has to happen for all of us that are consumers of the media, is to look at a lot of different uh, whatever, social media or newspapers, or um, or look at uh, watch different kinds of television. By the way, um, this goes with my to-do list about uh, trying to understand why people, uh, what I disagree with. So you should all be glad that you don't live in Washington uh, because I listen to right-wing radio as I drive, uh, and there are a lot of hand gestures and yelling and things. Um, But it's important to listen, I think, and try to figure out why it's coming out the way it is. But I do think that we need to uh, be researchers in many ways to look at what the media is doing. Most people seem remarkably unwilling to do that. And I think, you know, when we get to our way forward, we'll, we'll come back to that. I want to spend a, a, just a couple of questions on the State Department and foreign policy as it exists uh, today. You know, the State Department budget's been cut. The Defense Department budget has increased. Mattis himself, when he was um, Secretary of Defense, asked for more money uh, for the State Department. What impact do you think this is having in in two different ways? One is career State Department employees and diplomats, and the other, the void that it's leaving across the world. Well, I, I obviously believe in the State Department, but I think that it has been mistreated. And it began with uh, Secretary Tillerson, 
um, who not only uh, accept it. By the way, the thing that happens on a budget is uh, it is prepared by each department. You send it to the Office of Management and Budget. There are people there that try that ask the people from each department to come in and explain why they think they needed that money. Uh, you can reclama certain things and say, no, I need more, uh, or whatever. And then they put together the budget, and they give it to the president. So I can tell you what happened uh, during the Clinton administration. We were able to go in, and then if we still didn't like the budget, is to sit in the cabinet room and push the president to try to give you more money on your budget. Um, I, I must say I kind of played a trick. I would call President Clinton at Christmas and wish him Merry Christmas and ask for more money, uh, <laughs> and it usually worked. But, uh, but I really do think that the State Department has now been denigrated in terms of what it can do. Um, and the budget is something... In contrast, you know, it's kind of like under $50 billion, and the Defense Department has over $700 billion. Um, and also the reorganization that has not been done with any kind of sense of respect for what the State Department does. Secretary Pompeo has said that he was going to return the swagger to the State Department, uh, but they still haven't gotten all their nominations in. We don't have ambassadors at the moment um, in uh, Turkey, in South Pakistan, Korea. South Korea, uh, Venezuela. I mean, it's crazy in terms of Saudi Arabia, places that we really need them. Um, and there also is not enough arguing for the budget, and we have to see what's going to happen uh, in the next one. I do think one of the important questions that you asked is, I think young people are not taking the foreign service exam. Um, and some of them have come to me, because at Georgetown at the School of Foreign Service, and they say they don't want to have anything to do with the policy. I actually say to them, believe it or not, you're not going to make policy. You're going to stamp visas for a while. Um, but it's very important for you to be in there, because otherwise there is not going to, in 10 years, there will not be diplomats. And one absolutely needs people that are trained in diplomacy, I teach a course at Georgetown, and I say foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. Uh, what are the tools? And diplomacy is the prime tool, and you need diplomats. And so I'm very troubled with what's happening at the State Department. We'll see at the moment, uh, interestingly enough, the continuing res omnibus has given some more money to the State Department, but we're going to have to see what happens on the next run. And what has happened is the man that was head of OMB Mulvaney is now the chief of staff, so it isn't exactly as if one's got a real advocate yeah. sitting next to the president. So what do you think of Pompeo and Bolton? Well, um, I th Bolton I first met uh, when, when I was named U.N. ambassador. He was a, assistant secretary for the inter for international organization, which meant that during the transition you can get briefed about what's going on. He was so awful about the U.N., I thought, why would I ever want that job? He then, when he was in, um, then the other part that was interesting, um, in the first Bush administration, he was made um, um, the undersecretary for arms control, which was like kind of putting the fox in the chicken coop. Um, then he was ambassador to the U.N. and uh, wanted to destroy it. Um, and I find him one of the most... Uh, uh, hard-headed people uh, and unclear to me. I do teach this course on decision-making, how decisions are being made. I don't understand it. There apparently have not been a lot of principals meetings, and he has said some fairly outrageous things. I think that Secretary Pompeo 
um, is in a very difficult position and trying to figure out how to have a State Department um, that has enough money. Uh, he has gone on some diplomatic missions. I don't have enough of an insight into how the diplomats are being used, uh, but I like the fact that he wants to kind of return the State Department to some uh, sense of um, primacy. I mean, you can't do things without diplomats. Do you think, you know, if we think about how outside the norms Trump has operated uh, in the arena of diplomacy, let's take his meetings with Putin. So Putin is a ex-KBG, I think, a, a, maybe an You are never thing. an ex-KGB. You, you are, right? Yeah. He's meeting with him alone. It's, there are no notes. There's none of that. Uh, aside from the damage you think is going on to diplomacy, if, what do you imagine Putin saying about Trump? Well, first of all, let me just say, I used to be a Soviet expert, and I kind of look at my library and I think archaeology, actually not. And you've met Putin. Yes, I have. Yeah. Uh, and I think that um, the, there is this sense, and uh, by the way, I, I was part of a great um, survey in 91 after the fall of the wall and the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union, and I'll never forget this focus group outside of Moscow. This man stands up and says, I'm so embarrassed. We used to be a superpower, and now we're Bangladesh with missiles. And what has happened is Putin has kind of tuned into that of making Russia great again. And another so, embarrassment. And yeah. another, and really a sense their economy is not doing very well. But he is using his KGB talents, um, I think, in a way uh, to undermine democracy in other countries. I do think the Russians were involved in uh, our election process, but they clearly are. Uh, uh, weaponizing information in terms of what's happening in Central and Eastern Europe and what they've done in Ukraine, um, and they're mucking around in various places. I think what Putin has done is played a weak hand really well in terms of reintroducing uh, Russia into the Middle East a number of different aspects, whereas Trump um, is playing a strong hand badly. Um, and making America seem like a victim when we are the most powerful country in the world, uh, and he is undermining it. And so I think, uh, first of all, it's really weird to be in a meeting where there's no uh, other person taking notes, and the bottom line is that... Uh, well, you know the art of the deal. You probably forgot that part. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but I, I think, uh, actually, that was probably done in English most of the time. But I think the bottom line is that uh, he does not seem prepared for the meetings. We don't know what happens. Um, I understand that he had a meeting um, in Buenos Aires that uh, only recently came out. The right. only person that was along with him was Melania. So I did say the following thing this morning, and I don't regret it, which is that she was raised in the Balkans. Most people that understand Serbian understand Russian, so maybe she understood uh, what they were saying. Uh, <clears throat> but I really do think there are no people in these meetings, and I think that's very hard. And it's hard on policy because the thing that happens in the meetings is somebody is in there that then says... Uh, afterwards to the rest of the bureaucracy, this is what the leaders decided, this is what we have to do to carry it out, and we have no idea what goes on. 
You asked what does Putin probably say? I think he probably says that Trump is a gift. Mm. Yeah. You continue to travel all over the world, consult on all of these issues. How are our allies or other countries viewing what's going on and how much damage that's being done is reversible within a reasonable period of time? Well, I think that um, I do travel a lot. <clears throat> By the way, um, it's not appropriate, I have known, for a former diplomat to criticize one's country when abroad. So I've tried to be reasonable. On the other hand, I, I really do think you are you. that there <laughs> needs to be some credibility. Um, and so what we've done is really confuse our allies um, and uh, a gift to our adversaries. I was just at a meeting in Marrakesh, um, and there had been a conference on migration there. And the head of it, Louise Arbor, a Canadian, had asked me to speak. And when I get there, I see that the American chair is empty. The Russians and Chinese were there. We are AWOL. Uh, and I think, I believe in America's uh, participation in, in, national, in international policy. And we're not at the table. And I think that what is going to happen... And I've said, you know, we can put up with another two years of this, but not four more. Because what will happen is there will be structures that are created where we're left out. And it, uh, there's always um, foreign policy, national security policy hates a vacuum. And it is being filled by the Chinese and Russians. Uh, and we, I think we will pay dearly, and our national interests will not be respected if we are AWOL all the time. So we have swept through a lot of history in the book, which since everybody here uh, will own the book, I uh, highly encourage you to uh, study it. You, th you do then talk about our way forward. Um, and the, you describe yourself as an optimist that worries. So let's discuss the question you put to your graduate students at Georgetown. Can fascism take hold in the United States? Well, I, um, this is a warning. I actually think that we need to make sure it doesn't take hold in the United States by asking ourselves a series of questions about the kind of leader that we want. What is it we expect? What is it we expect of our society? Uh, what are the things we expect of each other? I think, um, and this seems like a paradoxical point, but I think that democracy is both resilient and fragile. Um, and, um, and I think that we need to recognize, and Harold quoted my father in saying there's nothing better basically than to be a professor in a free country. But one of the other things my father said was that he was afraid that Americans took democracy for granted. And I think we can't do that and recognize the fact that we need to participate. One of the things I talk about in the book, I know populism um, gets a bad reputation. I actually think it's not, you need people to have a democracy. Um, and I think we need to understand that uh, the people are the ones that we have to work with to make sure that we ask the questions, that we choose the leaders, that we don't take any votes for granted. And we, but I, I hate to think that we in any way can become a country that uh, where we succumb to fascism because we need to kick back. And what do you think the Democratic Party needs to do 
to be able to coalesce the people. I mean, even now with the Democrats controlling the House, you see uh, the progressive faction and you know, as a as a reader of the news, you worry that the Democrats won't cohesively come together with a compelling story. Do you worry about that, or what do you think they need to well, do? Well, first of all, I'm very excited about what happened in this uh, uh, midterm election because it really showed if people uh, are motivated and are um, active that one and can... Willing. Ch- and willing and active to change things. I had been asked the Congressional Research Service um, had a retreat for all new members of Congress, and they asked me to come and speak. What was interesting, actually, was that people had their placards on, and they had their name and their state, but not their party. So there were a lot of Republicans there. But also, the Democrats were very um, forward-leaning and interesting, and there are an awful lot of women that are part of that. Um, and I have hopes that there, that energy will be translated into legislation, and then and discussions with um, the, the population, that people don't just stay in Washington and have that. I do hope the following thing. I think it's interesting to see how many candidates are coming forward, and I think that's very healthy. I just hope we don't form a firing line in a circle. Um, and so we have to be sure that we come out with a really great candidate. Is there someone internationally or domestically as a leader that you have great faith or admiration for? An American? American or No, I mean, I do think that it's a very hard time for leadership, that um, some of the people that abroad that one had hopes in, that there are difficulties in various countries, we're not the only ones. I think that um, it is a hard time for people to come forward with ideas that deal with that initial issue we were talking about, divisions in society, how one reconstructs the social contract, how people recognize the fact that paying taxes is the price of living in a civilized society um, and the responsibilities that we have to each other. Um, and and I, I have to say, I, I, as I say, I travel a lot. I do think that one has to um, analyze the various leaders and how they got to where they were, but you don't have a sense that there's some magnificent person out there. Well, you know, one of the things that you talk about in the book when you study all previous fascists or even the route that Donald Trump used to get elected, what they know they need to do is have simple answers, not complicated answers, not things that look difficult. And the question is, when you intersect the notion of populism with a kind of natural disinterest in complicated, messy answers, what does that suggest is the right way to run for office or engage the population in the conversation? I think that one has to say that there are no simple answers or simplistic answers, and that it takes work on behalf of the population as well as the leaders to make that connection. And there's something in between, you know, sounding overly um, academic or um, snobby, but I think to really decide that we have to have some public discussions and having more town hall meetings and having more interchanges and deciding that a democracy 
uh, is, a, is a whole concept of talking with the people and getting them involved. I think it's actually fine that we already have started the political campaign because, in fact, it's going to take a while to get through the issues and try to figure out how we deal with the issues that are out there. I also do hope, and I say this uh, because I am an immigrant, we have to figure out how to have comprehensive immigration so that we don't operate on the basis of the fear factor, but on the basis of what this country is about, is hope and optimism, and trying to figure out how to be an activist part of a very complicated international situation. Okay, so before we get... I'd like to close with this. You have said the temptation is powerful to close our eyes and wait for the worst to pass. But history tells us that for freedom to survive, it must be defended. And that if lies are to stop, they must be exposed. What I would like to thank you for, Madam Secretary, is with your formidable intelligence, indomitable spirit, inexhaustible energy, that you are continuing to do that for us, for the country, and for the world. So thank thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. And what I really, I've said this, it took me a long time to find my voice, and I sure am not going to be quiet now. So thank you all very much. Thanks again to Madeline Albright. Her book, Fascism, A Warning, is available now. Make sure to pick up a copy at your favorite independent bookseller. If you haven't subscribed to Just the Right Book yet, it's free. To subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original new music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening. 